I'd like you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. The title of the message is Confidence in Christ. So I want to start by just asking you, where's your confidence? What have you placed your confidence in? Some people place their confidence in themselves. They just believe there's no possible way they could ever do anything wrong. A story is told of coaching great Bear Bryant, who coached at University of Alabama for a number of years, incredible coach, won a number of national championships, and uh, one of his former players was hunting with him one day, and duck comes flying over. Bear Bryant raises a gun, shoots it. Duck keeps flying. Bear Bryant looked and said, that's a genuine miracle right there. That is a dead duck still flying. Well, if that's where your confidence is in there, sometimes you're going to be disappointed. Some people's confidence is in religion. I want to share a quote with you from one of the world religions. In fact, it's the fourth largest religion in the world. Six percent of the world's population are followers of this religion. It basically says this, self-confidence plays an important part in every aspect of man's life. Knowing that no external sources, no faith or rituals can save him. He needs to rely on his own efforts. He gains confidence through self-reliance. He realizes that the whole responsibility of his present life, as well as his future life, depends completely on himself alone. Each must seek salvation for himself. In fact, one of their leading authorities put it this way. Self-confidence is not a feeling of superiority, but of independence. Well, if you've heard anything through this letter to the Romans from the Apostle Paul, it is that we can't put confidence in ourselves. In fact, what has overwhelmed me in the study of Romans is just a fresh reminder of how much God has done and what all God has done. Because what Romans points out is, apart from Christ, we're sinners. In fact, before we come to Christ, we're sinners, separated from God. In fact, what we earn from sin is death. And the fact that we have life is only a free gift from God. We don't earn it. We don't bring something in our hands that makes us deserve it. It's all God. So before you leave here today, if you don't hear me say anything else, when you walk out of here, if you're a child of God, your confidence can be not in the fact that you're at church this morning, not in the fact that you've done some religious steps, not in yourself, but your confidence can be in the fact that God has paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. And through Jesus Christ, we can know eternal life. Now, I don't want to scare any of you, but I have four points this morning. If you come here on a regular basis, you know I usually keep it to three. A couple of times a year or so ago, I had two, so I'm making up for it today. But we're still going to get out of here by 12, okay? So just hang on. Buckle up here in Romans chapter 8. For a lot of people, this is their favorite passage of the Bible, much less the book of Romans. Incredibly rich passage. In fact, I hope today all I really do is whet your appetite to study deeper Romans chapter 8. Let me begin reading just verses 26 and 27 just to get us started with the idea of our confidence in prayer. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who such searches the heart knows the mind of the Spirit, knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. 
So the first point is our confidence in prayer. And Paul says in the same way, he's referring back already to the activity of the Holy Spirit that he's already mentioned up earlier in chapter 8. But he says the Spirit helps. One of the words for the Spirit in the New Testament is the word paraclete. I remember as a kid singing a hymn that had the word paraclete in it. And I was a baseball player. I thought, what's a paraclete's got to do with God? But it means, it's two words put together, means one called alongside of to help. In fact, it really has this idea of you're trying to carry something, the Holy Spirit comes along and picks it up and carries it with you. He's called to be a helper. I saw a beautiful picture of this when I was doing a mission trip to Ukraine a number of years ago. And I saw something I never see over here in the United States. If you're going to pick an ice chest up that's way too heavy for you, what do you do? Guys, you just man up and just pick it up. They never try that over there. You know what they do? They get on one side of it, and somebody comes and gets on the other side. And I saw that time after time, whether it was a bag they were carrying, whether it was an ice chest they were carrying, a cooler, whatever. They just And I thought, that's just a beautiful picture of what Paul is teaching right here, that the Spirit helps our weakness. The stuff that we can't do, God rushes in through the person of the Holy Spirit and helps our weakness, literally our feebleness or our frailty. And here's one of the weaknesses he helps us with. We can't even pray like we should. You ever struggled with prayer? Prayer is one of those things that we talk more about than we do sometimes. We, we write books on prayers. We have conferences on prayers. And what Paul is saying is we really don't even know how to pray as we should. I remember as a teenager, a couple of different times this happened to me, but one time I was following an ambulance to the hospital, and my mother looked at me and said, let's pray hard. What does that mean? <laughs> well, for, for us, for, for my limited understanding, it just meant you squint your eyes a little tighter. <laughs> what does it mean, pray hard? Pray. We're praying hard. God, do you notice? I'm grunting here. Ah! So when Paul says we don't even know how to pray like we should, you know what? Our problem is we really don't know how to pray well. Plus, we don't even know what we're supposed to pray for sometimes. Have you ever been in one of those situations where you just kind of bow your head and you know you need to pray, but you're not even sure, sure the words to use? This happened to me in Orlando, Florida, counseling with a girl who, first thing she told me was she thought she was demon-possessed. She ended up praying to receive Christ and said, when I get home, my dad will kill me because he's the leader of a satanic cult. Story's a whole lot longer than this, but get to the point. I said, well, let's pray. That's the only thing I knew to do. So let's pray. And as soon as I bowed my head, I thought, you dummy, you don't even know what to say. And so I just kind of started this way. Um, God, help. God, God, I don't even know how to pray here. I don't know whether to pray that her father comes to Christ while this girl's away or that you somehow get her, get him out of her life. While she's away. A week later, I got a phone call from the youth pastor. He said, you're not going to believe what happened. <laughs> why, why is it we pray for stuff? And then we're like, man, you're not going to believe it. <laughs> what? God answered prayer. Well, how about that? While we were in Orlando, Florida, God had orchestrated a move that moved her dad totally out of her life. She wasn't living with her dad anyway, but he was out of her life. And so Paul says, listen, when you get to those places in your life where you can't even pray, and I know you've been there. You've been at the place where it's just, you're just, God, I'm so desperately needy. I'm not even sure what to ask for. But God, if you don't come through, we're sunk. Paul says when you pray, when you get in those situations, understand 
the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And if you read three commentaries, you'll get four opinions over whether the groanings are your groanings or whether they're the Spirit's groanings. This is not some ecstatic language that he's talking about, but I think it's both. I think that the Spirit takes the, the innermost, our, our, beyond our words. He sees the heart. And He takes those thoughts to God with groanings that are too deep for words. Folks, there's times when you go to the Lord in prayer and you can't even put it into words. And that's why it's a comfort to know the Holy Spirit takes us at those moments. Whether it's through a struggle that you're going through or through a life event. Maybe it's in a hospital or at a funeral home. But the Holy Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words. In fact, Paul unpacks a little bit more. He says, he who searches the heart, he's talking about the Father. He's talking about God the Father who searches the heart, knows the mind of the Spirit. So they're communicating with one another. The Spirit is speaking to the Father on our behalf. And it says He intercedes according to the will of God. In fact, the word to the will of might be in italics in your translation. If you look at the original language, not in there. It really just says He intercedes according to God. See, we all want to pray according to God's will, and we want to tack that on at the end, which is a good thing. God, but not my will, but Your will be done. God, we pray this in the name of Jesus according to Your will. Well, I want you to look at it this way. If you're really praying and the Holy Spirit is interceding, this is like an inner office memo taking place. <laughs> it's the Father who knows the mind of the Spirit. They're communicating with each other in ways that we can't. And what a comfort. The next time you pray, I just want you to stop yourself if you're just kind of praying some flippant prayer. And I want you to realize you've been invited into the throne room of the Father. And even when you get there, if you're not sure how to articulate your need, God knows your heart. And the Spirit even knows those inmost longings of your heart. And so your prayer is effective as you pray. Then our confidence is explained. Paul says this quite often, but he says, starts this next section, just verses 28 through 30. He says, for we know. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. What, what a comfort. In a minute, this comfort is going to be questioned, but you've got to get this part first. To understand, first of all, that God is sovereign. God can cause all things to work together for good. If you read that verse to say God causes all things, then it leaves you with a lot of question marks. Does God cause you to sin? Well, He allows it. Did God cause this or that? Listen, there's, there's evil things that happen in the world. What this verse is saying is God can cause all things. Let me ask you, is there anything left out of the word all? There's not a footnote here saying all except see the exclusions. This isn't like a car ad where the lawyer's got a hold of it. 
This is all things. This is anything that you're going through. You can have confidence to know that God can even take that and cause it to work together for your good. Why is that? Well, first of all, because God's good. God's better than, he, than you think He is. God's good. God's also in control. And whether you see the good in this life or not, there's ultimately this word we're going to get to in a minute, and that is glory or glorification. That's going to happen in our life. Now, one thing you'll notice is it doesn't say that God removes you from every bad situation. But it says all things work together. The word work together, we get the word synergy from this. Synergy is one of those terms that means this. It means multiple components come together and produce an effect that is greater than any of those individual components could have of their own combined. They have to come together to make it work. So here's what God can do. God can take everything that happens in your life, the good stuff and the bad stuff, and here's His purpose for you. He causes it to work together for good. The only criteria is this. It's for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. I love His qualification. There's times that God protects us from things, and there's other times that God leads us through things, but He has a purpose in it. When James writes this in the first chapter of James, Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's what God wants for you, that you would lack in nothing. And so He allows things into your life. Sometimes He causes them. Sometimes they're things that God allows. Sometimes they're bad decisions by other people. Sometimes it's evil that God wished you hadn't walked in. But for those who love God and are called according to His purpose, God can take all of it and work it together for good. Then he uses five verbs. first one is foreknew. It means to see beforehand. It means to foresee. Remember a conversation with a guy, just this knowledge of God, to know that God is all-knowing. Conversation with a guy, with a pastor friend of mine, he said, you know, you talk about God as if he knows how much money I make. Like, yeah, he does. If God knows every hair on your head and every thought before it proceeds from your mouth, then yeah, he knows how much money you make. He even knows how much money you make you don't report to the government. He's smarter than Uncle Sam. That's God. So the first word is the word foreknowledge. Then predestined literally means to limit in advance or predetermine. He's predetermined that you would be conformed to the image of His Son. The word conformed means jointly formed. It means, it's two words, together shaped. You'd be conformed to His Son's image. Here's the way John put it in 1 John chapter 3. He talks about the fact that we're children of God, and he said, it's not yet appeared what we're going to be like, but we know this much, that we're going to be like Him because we're going to see Him just as He is. So that process has already started, folks. The moment you came to Christ, God began a 
process in your life that will ultimately result in your glorification when you see Jesus and you're transformed immediately to be like him. But God's already begun that work. Because he is the firstborn among many. Jesus Christ is named the firstborn. Literally, the one who is chief in rank or in position among many. Here's the good news. Jesus was the first, but there's many to come. If you've trusted Christ and you're part of this lineage now of Jesus, he was the firstborn, and now you've followed him. And here's the good news. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Literally, he invited and he justified, and he glorified. So the points in your outlines are, first thing, God calls is good for believers, but next, he calls, he justifies, and he glorifies. Here's what I want you to see in this passage, and I could take a whole lot more time here. Some people get real nervous here, because whether you're from an Arminian view or a Calvinist view, or you're like 75% of the people in here have never heard those words. Understand this, it's God who does it. God is sovereign, and God calls. He justifies. We've unpacked the word justified, but just in a nutshell, justified means pronounced innocent, to render just. That's what happened the day you came to Christ. You were justified. Glorified is something that happens the day you see Jesus face to face. And so God began something before salvation. He brings it to pass at salvation, justification, but then we're looking forward to glorification. In other words, God's been active from eternity past to eternity future. Now, you can't wrap your mind around that because we don't understand that. We don't understand eternity because we're limited. We still have clocks and calendars. You realize we're not going to need those when we get to heaven? Because eternity never ends. Like the song said, after 10,000 years, we'll have no less days. It's like nothing's ticked off the calendar after 10,000 years. That's eternity. That's what we have to look forward to in glorification. But then there's this question, and Paul does this in Romans. He asks questions that you're thinking, well, he's answering questions nobody's asking. But I think people are asking this, and Paul's hearing these questions, so he says, I'm going to address this. I've just unpacked. Your confidence where it should be, but now let me, let me talk about the questions. Paul says, what shall we say then? Verses 31 through 36. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he also, not also, with him give us, freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. So here's the question then. Paul's saying if you haven't got it that you are securing Christ, Now, let me just ask the question. What are we going to say then about who could be against us? Listen, if God's for us, God is superior to all, who would you bring against God? This God who didn't spare His own Son, but freely gave Him as a sacrifice for our sin. If He began that work, 
Certainly, surely he's going to complete it. So who will bring a charge? Who will be the accuser? That's the literal meaning of the word Satan in the New Testament. The definition of the word Satan is this, accuser. That's what Satan loves to do. He loves to accuse you before God and God before you. He loves to go before God and say, he doesn't love you. She doesn't love you. And he has no standing there. He did that in the Old Testament with Job. God proved that, take it all away from Job, ultimately he would praise God. So he really doesn't have any room to go before God and accuse you before him. So now what he does is comes to you and accuses God before you. God doesn't love you. Look at what you've done. God doesn't love you. What's Paul saying? How is he going to bring that kind of charge before the judge, God? God's going to call that out of order. And folks, you and I need to do the same thing. Don't allow the accuser to bring back stuff that God has said you're innocent over. God didn't just say you're not guilty. God said you are innocent. You now have the righteousness of Christ. God justifies. Who condemns? The word condemn means to judge against or pronounce judgment or issue a sentence. Well, who can do that if God said you're innocent? Well, one of the groups that was doing it in Rome and throughout really the New Testament time was the Judaizers. Just just give you one example. You look in the chapter of Acts, toward the end of Acts, they had to have a council in, in Jerusalem to discuss this. The Judaizers were those who claimed to be Christians but were saying, you can't be a Christian if you haven't become a Jew first. In other words, you've got to go through all the ritual of being a Jew, including men's circumcision, in order to be a Christian. So they were accusing these people of being second-class, second-rate believers. And so they had this council in Jerusalem. The outcome of the council was it's in Christ alone, adding nothing to the cross. So who condemns? Jesus is interceding for us. We already know the Holy Spirit is, but we know Jesus is too. Just jot down 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of the Father. Here's the cool thing about Jesus' position now. In the tabernacle in the Old Testament, they didn't have any chairs because the priest's work was never completed. But when Jesus died on the cross and said, it is finished, he took his position beside God, and the only time in Scripture we see him stand is when Stephen was being stoned in Acts. It said that Stephen looked up and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Pretty significant. But if Jesus has called it finished, then who will try to separate us from the love of God? The word separate means to place space between, to part. In fact, it's the word in Matthew chapter 19 when Jesus is talking about marriage and he says, What God has joined together, let not man separate, put asunder, put a space between. What's Paul saying? You can't, no one can put this space between us and God anymore because we're now joined in Christ. And I think our confidence gets shaken if we think we're holding on to God somehow. What we need to understand is it's not us holding Him, it's Him holding us. So he, he gives us seven things. Is it what will separate us? Could it be tribulation or distress? The word tribulation means pressure, to be squeezed or placed under pressure. Will that separate you from God? Could it be distress? Literally narrowness. We get the word stenographer from this for narrow writing. 
Could it be the narrowness of room that just pressures you? Could it be persecution or famine? Persecution literally to pursue, which is what the Apostle Paul did before he became a Christian. He pursued Christians to punish them. His name was Saul. So persecution or famine? Famine, lack of food. And that's what was happening to Christians in the first century. They weren't experiencing global famine at the time. They were experiencing personal famine. They were placed in prisons. A lot of Christians in the first century died in prison from malnutrition. Shall nakedness or peril or sword? Again, just a lot of Christians lost their source of income because they came to Christ. They lost their job, lost their family. Because people walked away from them. And Paul said, even that, even... You can't even adequately clothe yourself anymore. Or peril. Literally dangers. Or sword. The word that he uses for sword here is actually for a dagger. What was happening in the first century is some of the Christians were being killed by professional hitmen that carried concealed weapons and put them to death. And then he quotes Psalms 42. Excuse me, Psalms 44, verse 22. For your sake, on account of Jesus, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Not long after Paul expresses this in Rome, Nero began slaughtering Christians. And here's what he did. Some of the Christians were basically used as sport among gladiators and killed. Others of them were thrown to wild animals while people cheered from the stands. And some were even used as human torches to light the roads of Rome. And so here's what Paul's saying. Even if that kind of thing comes upon you, even that kind of persecution and even death, know this, you are not separated from the love of God. They may take your life, but they can't take you away from God. And Folks, that seems like, well, that happened 2,000 years ago. Folks, it's happening today. Did you read the article in the paper this week? about the Christian minister in another part of the world who has basically said, we'll let you get the surgery that you need that will save your life. But before you do, you must recant your faith. And friends that know him have said, there's no way he's going to do that. So even dying of cancer, because you can't get the treatment that may save your life, know this, they may, they may kill your body, but they won't kill your soul. You're secure in Christ. In fact, I didn't put this in in a screen, but just listen to this. Just jot down 2 Corinthians 11. Paul knew what it was to be persecuted. He talks about the servants of Christ. I speak as if insane. I'm more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I've received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. That's the same Paul who ultimately says the last three verses. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. 
For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul, who had experienced many of this, Paul, who was in prison as he writes this letter, says, listen, we, we in all of these things, we more than conquer. We overwhelmingly conquer. It means to vanquish beyond. It literally means to hyper-conquer with success to spare. It would be hard to even give a modern-day illustration of that. It would be like a, fo- a professional football team playing a peewee football team. Who do you think is going to win that one? Here's what Paul's saying. Listen, your confidence in Christ, the power of Almighty God, the worst the world can do to you is kill you. But here's what Paul is. Here's what Paul says God has promised: life everlasting. Most of us in this room have never experienced what Paul's talking about in persecution. But folks, regardless of whatever goes on in your life, I want you to know you overwhelmingly conquer. Because you're on His team. God is able to flex holy muscles so we are supremely victorious. And Paul said, I am convinced. And he names ten things. Death, life, angels, principalities, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, nor any other created thing. Just in case he's left something off the list. Paul says, nothing can separate us. Nothing can place room between us and God. Nothing is able to separate us. From the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not if they kill you. Not if you experience persecution in life. Even angels or principalities. You think angels, aren't they the good guys? Well, it, angel just simply means messenger. It could be a good messenger or a bad messenger. But Paul put it this way in Galatians when he said, Even if an angel from heaven was to preach a different gospel to you, let them be accursed. Don't listen to it. Things present or things to come. Stuff that's here now or stuff that could ever happen in your life. Height, the highest elevation you could imagine or the lowest depth you could imagine. Nor any other created thing. That includes everything but God. Because God wasn't created. He's always existed. He's eternal. And we've already found out He's on our side. Actually, He's called us onto His side. Nothing can separate us. From the love of Christ, from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together. As you bow your heads, just if you're here this morning and you can say, you know, I, I know, I know beyond any shadow of a doubt that I'm a child of God. And it may be that you're going through some tough times right now. It may be persecution from family, it may be friends that have walked away, or it may be something that's to come. Find comfort in the fact that nothing on earth can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He who promised is faithful. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, this morning you feel that tug on your heart that I need to give my life to Christ. I need to acknowledge that I'm a sinner and separated from God. My encouragement for you is that today would be the day of your salvation. Today would be the day that you acknowledge that God loves you and that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin on the cross. And I don't have any magic words for you to say. 
but at the attitude of your heart that you would say to God, I, I know that I'm a sinner and I'm separated from Christ. Would you please forgive me? Would you be my Lord and my Savior? I will follow you. God, thank you for that assurance. Touch hearts today as only you can. We pray this in Christ's name.